Welcome to The Future Strategist, and I'm here again with Greg Cochran, and today we've decided we're going to talk about Ukraine. I think, Greg, we can assume most of our listeners know the basics of what's happening in Ukraine, so we don't need to summarize that. Probably true. Uh, it reminds me of uh, an example somebody talked about in which uh, uh, the Shackleton expedition had been exploring Antarctica, and they'd been totally cut off from all the news for several years. They'd left in 1914, and they came back in 19, I think, 16 or 17, and somebody was busy telling them all the horrible, stupid news from World War One all at once, and, and uh, they, it took them a little while to accept how, how idiotic everything had been. But, so, you know, maybe we'll have a couple of people like that listening. Uh, well, no, probably not. Is this is what Putin has done idiotic? Um, from his point of view, from a sort of sociopathic, what's best for him or what's best for Imperial Russia kind of viewpoint. Well, to some extent, it depends what he considers valuable, and I'm not sure I know, but um, probably not. Uh, but, you know, you have to remember that of an awful lot of wars have not worked out well for the people who started them. People make mistakes on this sort of thing. Uh, uh, somebody once said, somebody named Adolf Hitler, that starting a war is like opening a door in a dark room. But apparently he didn't listen to himself very much. You know, on the grounds that you, you, you know, anything can happen. You don't really know what. But that also means that uh, suppose you started out, you're a head of state. Well, any, anything happening means you know, maybe you won't be a head of state at the end of the process, or maybe you'll be dead. Uh, you would think people would be more cautious about this, but but sometimes they're not. Although to get to be head of state, you probably have to be somewhat of a risk taker. If you don't inherit it. Yeah, that's an advantage of kings over dictators, is the king is at least probably average. <laughs> on some things, yes. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, guys who, who start from scratch, they not only need to be daring and risk-taking, they probably typically need to have some sort of brains or talent where, you know, the inherited guy has been known to get by without any. Mm -hmm. um, but for Putin, I mean, his, I think his stated reasons for this is that Ukraine, if he didn't invade, would eventually join NATO, and then there would be U.S. bases um, very close to Russia. And that wouldn't make be, much difference. Okay, why would that not make much difference? Well, like, let me talk about an example where it did make difference and sh say you know, what the differences between that example and today are. Uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, Russia was putting short-range missiles into Cuba. Now, at the time, Russia didn't have many long-range missiles, and they were cranky. They were They used liquid oxygen. You couldn't keep them ready. You had to fuel them up. If you fueled them up and left them, the oxygen would boil away. So it would take you like 10 hours to get them ready, and they only had 20 of them. The, you know, that's at that date. Uh, they had a lot more short-range ballistic missiles that worked better. Now, if they could put those short-range missiles into Cuba, suddenly they became long-range missiles that could reach the United States. And they were even superior long-range missiles 
because they could get there very quickly. There'd be very little warning. So when Russia put those missiles into Cuba, they roughly doubled their strategic power. Okay. Now, the thing is, today, both the United States and China and France and England uh, and Russia have much longer-range missiles that can hit. Uh, in some cases, they can hit without even leaving. Uh, well, I mean, like we have missiles in North Dakota that can hit anything we want to in Russia. They don't need to get any closer. Uh, submarine missiles, uh, their range is long enough that it's not. you don't have to get close to hit. So what is the advantage from having something that's closer? Answer is not much. So the counter argument to the American policy has been that America would never tolerate a Chinese military base in Mexico, and Russia is just doing the same thing. You don't find that argument valid, or? Well, I mean, it may be that we shouldn't, but it wouldn't all surprise me if we did, because you know we're often completely nuts. Uh, we. Um, and the other thing is this is all piled on a bunch of ifs. It's a mistake to do that because you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I don't think we were at all close to having Ukraine join NATO. Any country in NATO can veto it. And there was nobody in the U.S. was saying, yeah. I mean, at, the, at policy levels, nobody was saying, yeah, we really need to get Ukraine to join NATO. And for that matter, there's a, there was an, always a much more elegant solution on the table, which everybody was too foolish to apply, which was let Russia join NATO, and then we can contain France or something. Uh, and that's not a joke. Yeltsin asked, talked about joining NATO. Putin brought it up uh, back in 2000, and they, we didn't even give him an answer. But there's, there's some good logical reasons for doing something like that, or there were. I wouldn't say there are now. Not in the near future, anyhow. But uh, uh, but make you know all the things that might happen someday are a pretty poor reason to start a war. Partly because see, wars also have even more unknown future consequences, and they're very often bad ones. So Russia, though, has been invaded, of course, many times. I mean, by Napoleon and then twice by the Germans. And then, of course, the Mongols and their best protection historically has been to be very big and to have room to fall back. So well, you don't think it's – That's know. basic. I said you could say there may be certain psychological tendencies, but you know, I don't even know if the average Russian even knows there was such a thing as the, as the golden con, uh, conate. Uh, uh, I mean they only do it if they t teach it to them in school. It's not something you're going to remember. Mm -hmm. uh, you, could, you can get people – to have historical trauma about things, but if it's been 800 years, you can't have it happen without working at it. You have to, re I mean, we could, if we wanted to, we could spend a lot of time talking about all the frontiersmen who were scalped by Indians in, in, in you know, repeated wars uh, between France and England that played out in the United States, Queen Anne's War, the, you know, the French and Indian War, you know, don't we spend all our time, you know, thinking of France, the great enemy? Uh, well, I'm sure some people do, but uh, the point is the historical time depth is no is shorter. Why don't we sit around and talk about that? We, I mean, the point is it's a choice. You don't have to. And, I mean, sometimes it might be good to bring up an old memory because it actually applies. But I don't think Russia – I mean, Russia might be in danger of China doing something if it felt like it. 
simply because China is large and fairly advanced and has a bigger economy than they do and so forth and is next door. I don't think you have to really worry about the Golden Horde at this point. <laughs> you know, I uh, was thinking if Russia didn't have atomic weapons, now would be the perfect time for China to attack Russia. You know, you know, attacking countries is it's kind of overrated uh, in this day and age, which is, I mean, like, you know, what are the sources of wealth? I mean, to some extent, they're natural resources. The ones that would be the most worth invading over would be ones that were concentrated, highly valuable. Concentrated means you don't have to occupy a lot of territory to get them. Uh, ideally, where the other, you know, the people involved are not very militarily powerful and can't resist you very well. As far as I could tell, the only place I know that's really, really worth invading was Kuwait. And even that didn't work out that well because people didn't agree that it was a, that you should be doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, you know the, the the greatest sources of wealth are basically you know highly educated, smart people working in large sort of comp, you know extremely complicated uh, uh, if you consider uh, you know the product chains and everything teams making highly sophisticated things that's hard for anybody else to make. So Taiwan, very valuable. For example, but, you know, Apple Computer makes, you know, Apple Computer probably has higher free cash than the Russian Federation. I mean, last I heard, it had $200 billion just sitting around. They weren't sure what to do with uh, because their stuff is extremely profitable. I mean, oil is somewhat profitable, but, uh, you know, you look at the uh, – you look at the – distribution of profits among American industries, about half the profits are in about five companies, mm -hmm. all of which are basically uh, have software or close to because soft, it's, it's possible to come up with software situations in which you have extraordinarily large profit margins. You tend not to have that with things like, you know, even useful things like, you know, X, how much do you think Exxon makes compared to uh, Google? Not very much. Uh, they have a lot of sales, but they're not nearly as profitable. Well, if Putin thought he could get a lot of Ukraine and get the, the Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine to join with Russia, and they'd basically be happy with it, then he'd be getting a lot of people who reasonably well-educated could become much better well-educated and might help Russia in the long term. Was that a reasonable thing for him to think? I think he seemed to have thought it to a degree that wasn't very accurate. He seems to have thought that lots and lots of people, maybe, you know, majority or half or something like that, Ukraine really, you know, would would welcome the Russians with open arms. And I suspect there are some, but it doesn't seem like it's anywhere near that many, mm -hmm. as he was thinking. And, well, you know, here's a thought experiment. What would he have gained if if Ukraine had woken up one morning and said, you know, we just realized we've always wanted to be part of Russia. We'd like to be part of Russia. Look, we will even throw in a billion dollars if you'll just let us join. So I'd say the simplest comparison. All right. So that's got to be a lot more favorable than this situation, right? Right. You get, I mean, will there be international boycotts because the Ukraine said, please take me? Okay. No. I don't think so. Okay, would they? How much better would Russia be off? I said, well, in the medium, short to medium run, 
it would actually be difficult because Ukraine is really poor. Ukraine is poorer than – I think maybe the only neighbor that's comparably poor is Moldova. Ukraine is considerably poorer than Russia. It's poorer than Belarus, and Belarus is you know, a backward, screwed-up place. Poland is a lot more prosperous than Ukraine. Now, Ukraine has ingredients such that it could do better, but apparently it's sufficiently poorly organized. I mean, I guess you could say having threats in the background might have something to do with it, and being one of the probably two or three crookedest countries in the world has also been a disadvantage for them. Yeah, and, um, and not that bit. People say that like Putin wanted to invade Ukraine because success of Ukrainian democracy was a threat to him, but – that's the opposite, isn't it? I mean, Ukraine is a, an example for why you don't want to be democratic. It hasn't right. convinced me yet, but I'm certainly willing to think about it. Uh, well, look, that is a story that people tell every now and then. There were people who explained that the reason Islamic fundamentalists were against the United States because they were against its political freedoms. But that was probably that was just a story. It wasn't actually true. Okay, people. There were other reasons, mostly that they didn't like us. Uh, and uh, I don't think that's the reason. But the thing is, I'm not sure I know what the real reason is. I thought about this, you know, like a, a little while ago. We had the administration saying, you know, the Russians are have moved large, you know, tremendous numbers of troops up to the borders. We know they intend to invade. I wasn't sure about that. I was sure that the administration was right about the facts on the ground, about the number of troops. That's something That's something we actually know how to do fairly reliably. Uh, we have good spy satellites and so forth. Mm -hmm. But one, but I said, but what does he intend to do? I said, I don't know. And I, I wasn't confident that our government does because more often than not in questions like that, we get it wrong. But that doesn't mean you can't also get it right in some circumstances. Uh, for example, if we had intercepted commands from Putin to people that say, do it Tuesday, and went into some detail, yeah, then you would know. Now, they probably try to avoid that kind of interception, but such things have been known to happen. We, it was possible we knew. It was also possible it was a reasoned judgment from the foreign policy establishment, and that I didn't have much confidence in. Well, because they often say things like that, and they're often wrong. But... Uh, so what happened in this case is either we had special information or, you know, maybe their analysis was right. It's possible. Uh, I mean, I haven't I haven't seen it happen in years, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't get better. Uh, but uh, clearly there was some reason Putin wanted to do it. But from what I could tell, and I, by the way, the, the, the next set of things I'm about to say, I don't have great confidence in, uh, which is I might say for a lot of this, I'm trying to evaluate what's going on. And I don't think the information we're getting is terribly complete. I mean, it's not just propaganda and stuff. There's just a lot of stuff that I'd like to know that I don't. Uh, but, um, you know, I was talking about reasons for Putin. I, I get the impression, and again, it might be false propaganda or misinterpretations, that even some of the people in Putin's inner circle don't know why he did it. I say that because... He would start saying, oh, we're going to do X. You know, they had the head of his intelligence agency started saying something that sounded very much as if he didn't even, you know, he had heard something wrong about what the his own for, for government's foreign policy was. 
And then Putin says, oh, no, we're going to do X. And then, you know, the head of the FSB said, oh, yeah, we can do that, too. And this is at a televised meeting. Uh, and they had other things where they everybody looked saying, like, why are we doing this? Maybe maybe we're misinterpreting. Maybe they're just Russians with a hangover. But I have seen many things that say, I mean, I've seen things by guys who were in the recent past advisors of the Kremlin saying, I don't know why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one, I, I'm pretty sure, was real. Uh, uh, as I was saying, like, you know, when you think of all the benefits of having it happen with zero strife, uh, they aren't very big. I've said, like, probably you have to spend a lot of time trying to fix the Ukraine. I mean, which would be to, you know, to try to, uh, you know, possibly fight corruption, do something to, uh, you know, get it out of the, the degree of poverty it's in. Um, I mean, you might compare, if that had happened, you might have compared to reuniting East Germany with West Germany. And, you know, perhaps in the long run, that's a good thing, but it was very expensive in the short to medium run. Yeah. I mean, it was, and Ukraine would be a similar but bigger problem. If that's if everything had happened in this, you know, the way, not the way it did happen, but if, you know, they had had it a peaceful annexation. Now, a non-peaceful annexation is probably a lot worse, right? Uh, I mean, they're getting people killed. They're killing people. Ukraine will be less worth having at the end of it. I mean, depending on how much damage there is, but it could be a lot. I mean, some of the things that could happen is, uh, for example, the Ukrainians might not feel like keeping the pipelines working. That uh, Most of the pipelines to Western Europe that the Russia is selling natural gas from go through the Ukraine. They go through the Western Ukraine. They go through areas the Russians don't control. There's nothing to stop the Ukrainians from blowing every one of them up. It's easy to blow up a natural gas pipeline. It kind of wants to do it all by itself. Well, how long does it take to put in a new pipeline? I would guess it depends on how extensive the damage you did. But if you simply say, we're going to blow up every inch of it, I would say it would take several years to replace it. Uh, but apparently no one works, worries about that because, you know, that would be wrong. That would be vandalism. Uh, the uh, uh, well, That's I sort of like the Swedish were <laughs> – trying to deter the Nazis from invading by saying, we'll blow up all of our coal mines. You, uh, I thought a more realistic one was when Switzerland tried to de- deter the, uh, the Germans by saying, we will blow up the tunnels we built that go, that such, those are the railway connections between Germany and Italy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they took seven years to build. Mm-hmm. So that one is particularly uh, sensitive. Uh uh, I don't know if Swedish coal mines were that Yeah, it was steel, steel mines, I think. Uh, iron ore mines. I could yeah. believe that. Uh, uh, but but one of the things when you conquer countries, uh, you know, you know how, what that country can produce, in some sense how valuable its outputs are, has to do with, you know, raw materials and, and facilities, but also the uh, attitude of the locals. And, uh, uh, and certainly in World War II, uh, you know, Hitler found that conquering fairly industrialized places didn't necessarily end up getting anything close to the to their maximum normal output. It was as if the people in France and Belgium, you know, as if their heart wasn't in it when they were conquered by the Germans. Uh, 
Now, mind you, uh, I could tell you a couple of places where they got reasonable production. They got reasonable production out of out of Czechoslovakia of weapons, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, most places is as if they didn't really enjoy the whole process. Uh, 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 I mean, like, I mean, so let's contrast things with this imaginary. You know, in one, Russia spends the next 15 years trying to modernize the Ukraine. I mean, it might have a long-term payoff, but it doesn't. In the short run, it's expensive. You know that that's. But here, you might have a much much more difficult problem because they the Ukrainians might not like them. Yeah, it seems to be in the path. I've I've had people say, "Oh yeah, they'll they'll just get back together. They won't." And and by the way, it could happen. There have been countries that were conquered that kind of submitted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably helps if they have some things in common. Or if they were once part of the same country, uh, particularly if the uh, if that was if those are pleasant memories. Not all of the Ukrainian memories are pleasant. They're probably remembering, you know, the not personally at this point because you know the gen- generations have passed. But uh, you know, the mass starvation uh, from the Ukrainian famine probably doesn't. You know, if you wanted to, you could talk about that. That's more recent than the Golden Horde, yeah. uh, and you know, several million uh, Ukrainians died in it. You know, maybe, maybe it upset them. Yeah. Well, but you know, maybe having a lot of artillery in your town, like you know, how will this play out in the future? I mean, it's possible to know for sure. We can look at other historical examples. Like there have been places that conquered a given place, and they said, "We, we, we," and now there were some that said, "Well, we just want to kill all of you." you know, that's always doable. Okay, but what about it says we want to integrate you? We want you to be part of our system. We want you to, at minimum, not be, you know, uh, assassinating us when we aren't paying attention. We want you to, you know, to support us. You, we want us to volunteer and fight and for in war as if you were part of us. You know, we want to uh, uh, assimilate you. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. People have tried that, and sometimes they've succeeded, and lots of times they have not succeeded. If you don't succeed, it's hard to see how you can ever consider. Occup- invading, occupying, like this will always look like a mistake. Okay, now there's been people who occupied, but you could swear they didn't even care if the locals liked them. We would call that like uh, uh, England and Ireland. I don't think England ever really tried very hard to get the Irish to like them, and they certainly never succeeded. But I could tell you places that did. Uh, Imperial Russia did this in a bunch of cases, and mostly it didn't work. Uh, and by the way, sometimes they did a, you know, a not, a not malignant version of it. That still didn't mean it worked. So uh, when they conquered Poland, they said, well, you know, you should stop being Polish. You should be Russian. You should be. Uh, and you know, we'll ban uh, education in Polish. We'll do various things. Did it work? No. The Poles never forgot. They revolted now and then. When they got a chance, they got out from under. Did. Uh, there was a phrase they used in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is, you know, are you really, do you believe in this system? Are you, and I, I think Kaiser true was the word they used, except it was only true of Austria. Nobody, it was, nobody else felt that way. There were people who didn't hate the Austro-Hungarian system, but there was nobody else who was deeply loyal to it. Uh, so did Russia manage to make the uh, the Poles czar true? No, it, didn't, it never happened. Yeah. Uh, another place they tried was Finland. Finland had been ruled by Sweden, and then the Russians grabbed it in a war. 
for quite a while, they ran it in a really hands-off way. They said, you can keep your local laws. In fact, they were probably freer than they were under the Swedes. And they said, we will expect if we get in a war for you to send some of your troops. And other than that, you know, you're fine. And, and the, the Finns were quite comfortable with that. Taxes were there, but they weren't, you know, cripplingly high or anything. And the Russians didn't spend a lot of time trying to tell them what to do. And so they got along. And then the Russians says, no, we need Russification. We need to make you Russians. We need to make the Finns into Russians because that's our current theories. That's the right way to, you know, we'll have a more unitary state that way. Did it work? No, not a bit. Not at all. The Finns weren't interested. The Finns went from being, you know, semi-comfortable inside the Russian Empire to people who wanted to figure a way to get out of it. Now, there's other places where people, you know, said, like, did the Russians manage to, uh, by the way, the Soviets did some of these things too. Did the Soviets, uh, you know, they wanted to say, do we want to make the people in Central Asia, the Muslims of Central Asia, do we want to make them feel like they're really part of the Soviet Union and so forth and so forth? The answer was, well, you tried it some, but judging from what happened, the moment they had a chance to leave, it didn't work. Uh, you could say, what happened to Alsace and Lorraine when the Germans captured them in the Franco-Prussian War? Didn't they turn really German deep in their soul? <coughs> Weren't they happy to be part of Germany? And the answer was, no, that never happened. Mm -hmm. uh, mind you, in the past, it has happened more. Some of it is... You know, things like mass literacy probably make it harder to eradicate local culture. Uh, I mean, the Romans did it. I mean, of course, the Romans were also determined and patient. So, for example, well, the Romans wanted to conquer Spain. I mean, first because they're fighting with the Carthaginians, and later, you know, they just want to consolidate and hold on to it. And eventually, they got to a point where the people in Spain thought of themselves as Roman. How long did that take? I said, oh, I don't know, 200 years. Uh, I mean, there was 80 years of fighting. And then they were doing things like putting military colonies in Spain. You know, uh, uh, Roman troops would retire and you'd give them land in Spain. And so you'd have a little island of pro-Roman, fairly militarily tough guys that might help hold it in case of a revolt. And, you know, that and lots of time and Nothing too much interrupt. You know, there were no other major powers getting in the way in in, in Western uh, Roman Empire at that area. And, you know, probably by 100 A.D., um, they probably thought of themselves as Roman. Those who had even noticed the Romans were there. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say this was necessarily true of the Basque. But, anyhow, mostly it happened. So, uh, you know, how did it work with the Jews? I mean, the Romans wanted them to, you know, to acculturate. You know, they wanted to, uh, uh, they wanted them to, and by the way, so had the Hellenistic kings earlier. You know, they should drop their their customs like circumcision. They should go Greek, so to speak. Uh, how did that all work out? It didn't. Not, I mean, only to the tune of, well, the Maccabean revolt, which succeeded, and then there were probably at least three revolts against the Roman Empire. Uh, uh, did it work? No. Uh, I mean, it can work sometimes. I mean, uh, one place it worked is the uh, the Confederacy. 
Confederacy, after a while, kind of felt like it was part of the United States. And I don't think it took all that long. Now, of course, one advantage was only five years earlier it had already been part of the United States. But one, one thing the United States could offer that I don't think Putin could offer the Ukraine is, like, with, you know, some place like Georgia, you could say, we will readmit you and you will have your fair share of running the country in the sense that you will have congressmen. Mm -hmm. You will have senators. They are just as real and get to vote as anybody else's. And in fact, paradoxically, the South after the Civil War gained in representation relative to the North. Yeah, the three-fifths compromise. Yeah, they got rid of the three-fifths compromise. So blacks were now counted as full citizens, and that meant that there were more congressional seats. But of course, the Southerners didn't, after Reconstruction, didn't let the blacks win any of them. So there were more Southern Democrats in Congress relative than there would have been otherwise. But see, there's pro there's a problem with uh, Putin offering the Ukraine. Not that he has said it, but suppose he did. He, you are going to have just as much influence in the power structure as the average Russian. Yeah. The problem is that number is zero. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Uh, like you know, if you said the Southerners, uh now, the Southerners might say, you know, I'm not sure a Southern could get elected at this point. It says maybe they can't. But you can be influential in Congress. Mm -hmm. You can be a diplomat. You can be a general. You can go anywhere in the country and uh, start a business. By the way, Putin might possibly organ uh, allow that. But, uh, you know, can he offer them a share in the power? He says it doesn't appear he's given anybody a share in the power, so I don't really see how that would work. Although, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, yeah. The, uh, that all makes sense. Why don't we um, turn to the military situation? How do you, how do you think Putin is going to do? How do you think the Russians are going to do? Do you think there's a chance that they could be expelled from much of Ukraine eventually? Well, eventually is a long time, but let's well, say in the next couple of years. Yeah, in the next couple of years. I don't think it's very likely, but there's stuff going on that I don't understand. And uh, you know, by the way, they, to my mind, the key to accurate prediction, part of it is when you don't know what you're talking about, to shut up. Uh, or at least say, I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff happening that I don't understand. I don't think anybody else does either. Uh, the Russians are doing things that seem ineffective and strange. Uh, things like, uh, like the Air Force is not doing very much. They have a bigger one. It's not a totally, you know, crappy Air Force, or at least so what everybody had thought. Uh, one of the first things that you're generally expected to do in fighting a war is to Use your uh, air power to consolidate your air power. What you do is you you destroy the other guy's air force, mm -hmm. and to, and as much as you can his anti-aircraft capabilities, which means he can't do anything with his air power because it's gone, and you uh, can do all you want because there's now no opposition. And apparently none of that has happened. Could that be? I don't know why. Because Ukrainians have been given very good anti-aircraft missiles. It might be part of it, uh, but it's weird because they don't even seem to have tried. Uh, as I said, lots of things going on that I that don't compute. Uh, the, uh, I mean, people have said this repeatedly. They said, "Why don't they go and uh, uh, you know strike uh, what air assets the Ukrainians have?" And they yes, I mean, look, this can be very effective. There are countries that have done this 
crushingly on the first day or two, and it gives them a huge advantage. It means they have complete control of the air. Other times, people have gradually managed to do it, but still, it's a very useful place to get to when you have complete control of the air. So like when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, they did tremendous amounts of airstrikes on uh, airfields, you know, you know, within, say, two, three hundred miles into the Soviet Union, and they destroyed thousands and thousands of planes on the ground the first day. You know, at Pearl Harbor, the uh, Japanese destroyed lots, I mean, not a significant fraction of American air power, but a significant fraction of the local air power in Hawaii. They went and they attacked planes parked, uh, and they destroyed a lot of them. Uh, in 1967, the Israelis, as part of that strange Egyptian attack on them, destroyed all the Egyptian planes on the ground before they ever took off. Uh, that's a joke uh, because the Israelis said that they had been attacked, but that was just a story. Uh, the, uh, but it was useful. It was effective. Uh, and then for the rest of the war, the Israelis said, you know, if, if there's an airplane doing anything, it's going to be ours. Uh, and uh, this is a fairly standard thing. Um, but is and you can do it without huge uh, uh, side costs. I mean, you could do this without causing immense civilian casualties if you're worried about preserving that. And again, if you're worried about assimilating the Ukraine, you might want to not go for. You might want to, you know, not inflict inflict all the casualties that might be militarily useful. <coughs> but the point is, you could do this without having huge casualties. But they are doing it. Is it clear why. the Russian Air Force could overwhelm the Ukrainian <laughs> Air Force? Yes. Unless, <coughs> I said, you know, nobody ever knows everything that happens in a war. <coughs> or there's going to happen. I mean, in a sense, it used to be more knowable in the past because at least you didn't have to worry about the technology having completely changed since the last war. Mm -hmm. Uh but today, even that is possible. So, for example, fairly recently, there was a war between um, Azerbaijan and Ar Armenia. Yeah. Previously, they had wars that the Armenians had won, even though they were outnumbered. This time, they got beat rapidly. Uh, and apparently, it was, you know, drones made a lot of the Armenian stuff obsolete. Developments in drones. Developments in cheap drones. And by the way, uh, Ukraine has some of those cheap Turkish-made drones, although, again, do they have enough to be, you know, to be really important? That I don't know. So I've seen long convoys of Russian military equipment. That but, with drones, right, those should be easy to destroy. They have damaged some of them, and I think other reasons they're, they're stopped is because people blew up some bridges. But, yeah, I mean, the fact they just sit there for long periods. I mean, I think that uh, – they may have used up the, that model Turkish drone that they had, but they're also probably getting more. So some of these things depend on uh, to the extent and the and the speed with which the Ukrainians get new supplies of certain things. And some of that is public knowledge, and some of it is certainly things I don't know, and it may not be public knowledge at all. I mean, this might be crazy, but it would seem like it, if Ukraine had access to the drones that I could buy on Amazon, and they put like dynamite or explosives on it and just flew them into the tr trucks in the convoy. Just I think that. it's not quite that easy, although I guess I could be wrong. I think it is. It is the case. It is the case, and I mentioned that Armenia Azerbaijan example. 
the technology can change on you. So somebody who might have said, even just a few years earlier, says, oh, I know I can win this, no sweat, it can turn around. If, the tech, if both sides are not totally even in keeping up with the technology. So, uh, uh, I mean, like, I could imagine, I don't know if it's true, but I could imagine you get in a situation where where uh, various kinds of precision-guided munitions, drones, and so forth become uh, such that uh, a lot of the things we think of as tank warfare become not so useful. I mean, that, that looked to be the case in that Armenia-Azerbaijan case. I said, is it true of, say, Russian tanks? I said, I don't know. And also, it's, it's not just a question of quality. It's a question of numbers. I've said, like, if you have uh, – suppose you have 100 missiles – uh, that can reliably knock out a tank, and they knock out 100 tanks. Well, there's a lot more than 100 Russian tanks. On the other hand, if you have 1,000, that ha it, it's a different story. I mean, and by the way, you may not need to knock out all the Russian tanks if, uh, if like, the first wave of Russian tankers was almost wiped out. The second wave might actually be reluctant. Uh, uh, I, I would say, you know, the things that you don't know until you try uh, – one of them is things like morale and determination. Uh, like uh, if you looked at the uh, available weapons, you would have thought that the government of, of Afghanistan was in pretty good shape against the Taliban. Hmm. Um, I mean, I guarantee it. They had more of everything except wanting to be there. And there have been, you know, in our wars in the Middle East, we've shown some spectacular examples of how much difference that could make. Now, Afghanistan, I said, what happens if you have a fair amount of, you know, you know, we didn't give them ICBMs or anything, but they had a fair amount of the sort of weapons you might find useful in that kind of war, but it was as if they didn't exist. The uh, uh, Everybody ran instantly. You know, morale was zero. Nobody wanted to fight for the government of Afghanistan that we had installed. Uh, it just melted away. It was gone. Now, we have seen other examples of things like that. Uh, the uh, um, when you had ISIS, uh, which is apparently apparently snuffed out, although who knows it might revive. But for a while they were, you know, controlling a, a little region along the middle Euphrates in in Syria mostly, and they had ambitions to do more. And what they had was apparently quite a bit of motivation, and uh, they attacked Mosul, which is you know a fairly large city in northern Iraq. It was held by the Iraqi mostly Shiite government, mm -hmm. and the Iraqis held it with 40,000 troops that supposedly had a fair amount of equipment, and they were attacked by the numbers I've heard were less than a 1,000 ISIS guys with light weapons, and they ran, all of them, instantly. So, I mean, what would happen if the Russians had the same high morale that the Afghan government had? I said, well, then this won't work. I don't think it's that bad, but it looks like it isn't great. Uh, uh, I mean, as far as I could tell, they did not go through a period in which, which they tried to convince the average Russian, you know, before they invaded, where they tried to convince the average Russian this is really necessary. There are really good reasons for invading the Ukraine. They have done some since, but in terms of before, I didn't hear of any at all. That was one reason I was surprised when they invaded, because normally you do that. 
I think there has been a lot of propaganda on this. (laughs) It's just that we are never exposed to it. I don't think there was before. I was looking for it. I didn't hear any of it before they invaded. There has been some since. By the way, I could be wrong. I don't speak Russian. I might have missed it. But apparently, you know, there wasn't anyone anywhere in the press who had ever heard of it. I don't think it happened yet. Let me ask, would it be possible for Western countries to give Ukraine weapons such that Ukrainians could repel the Russians in the next few years? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, what do you have to work with? I mean, you're going to have a lot of guys who don't have a lot of training. There's not time for them to get a whole lot of training. Although, you know, some of them had some. But to do this, you would have to do stuff that doesn't require a long time to get ready. Because there isn't a long time. If you wait a long time, the Russians will have occupied all the Ukraine in the first place. Mm-hmm. You would have to do that. Then you have to get enough of qualitatively superior stuff. Uh, things like, and you know, we know some things like that, which are qualitatively superior, have been delivered. But the question is, is there enough? So you have uh, advanced stingers, which are pretty good at, at shooting down things like uh, jets. All right. Now, I happen to know that a stinger doesn't take too long to learn to use because I talked to a friend who actually qualified on it. And he said, how long does it take to learn a stinger enough to be at least a threat? He said, oh, 10 minutes, <laughs> uh, like so many places. Uh, but, but you need to know this of other things. I mean, and you need to have sufficient numbers, and then you have to way of getting them in that isn't blocked by the Russians. So uh, javelins are a longer – they're an anti-tank missile. Uh Oh, one of the key words which is sufficiently important that, you know, the next, sometime within two or three years, the press will mention it, is today we have missiles that are what we call fire and forget. Let me spend about one minute explaining the evolution of this stuff. Okay. World War II, people developed anti-tank weapons. They usually worked by what we call shape charges uh, that would allow them to punch through the certain amount of armor. Uh like the old, you know, the first one, or one of the first ones, was the bazooka. Uh, and there were British versions of that. There were uh, German versions of it, which were somewhat improved, something called the Panzerfaust. Uh, but they were something you had to get fairly close and aim, but particularly if you could get at, for example, the side or back of a tank, which has less armor, you could knock it out. Or sometimes, even if you just knock out a tread, that's enough to, you know, cripple it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, later, people uh, developed the wire-guided missile. That one has longer range, and you're guiding it, you know, like, like you're controlling it in a video game. But the way you control it is you're sending signals through a wire that's being trailed behind it. So you have to keep controlling it, which means you have to keep uh, uh, somewhere where you can still have access. You have to see what it's doing, for example. That was, for example, in the 70s, the... Israelis, when the Egyptians attacked in the Yom Kippur War, the Israelis charged mostly with just tanks. That had worked well in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it didn't work well there because they ran into very large numbers of wire-guided Sagar anti-tank missiles, and the the Israelis lost 400 tanks that day because the technology had changed underneath them, as well as the preparation level and education level of the Egyptian army. Mm-hmm. But the Israelis, who had, who were not dumb, figured out new tactics to deal with it to some extent by the next day. What they did was they realized this guy is controlling it. He has to watch. 
if we kill him, he won't control it anymore. And since the, the, the shells from our main tank gun have a much higher velocity than this wire-guided missile, we have a certain amount of time to identify the guy who's controlling it and blow him up. And then the missile doesn't do anything. It just goes off randomly. So uh, now that didn't mean they instantly won, but they, they didn't have another day of losing 400 tanks. Uh, so, again, these things, that's an important lesson. Technology can cause somebody who thought they had a crushing advantage to suddenly not. Mm -hmm. uh, and that must be especially worrying for Russia when Ukraine can import these high-tech weapons and Russia can't know. <clears throat> all the weapons that might be available. To well, Russia makes quite a few sophisticated things itself, but, you know, like, what's the total balance in terms of whose are more effective? Well, I think we're finding out. And I think that's the only way anybody finds out, is you have to try once in a while. I don't think people knew for sure how effective those cheap Turkish drones were until they got tried. And even when they worked in, uh, you know, against the Armenians, you don't necessarily know who else they work on, work at because it's a, you know, it's 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 counter, electronic countermeasures and things. Sometimes you you, you don't know enough uh, until it's been tried. Now Turkey um, must consider its main enemy to be Russia, so the drones are probably continually <laughs> being optimized to use against a Russian attack. I think mainly they were for sale, and so that they would <laughs> sell them to anybody, not anybody, but to a large number of people. But they, but that but who they think is their friend and their enemy does matter. Because if they felt really close to Russia, they wouldn't continue selling them yeah. to Ukraine, and I think they are. I have heard that there are more shipments coming. We'll see. Uh, but one thing that's happening is lots of these of these anti-tech missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, things of that sort, are uh, you know there's a fair number of them around in Europe. A lot of them are you know in a warehouse. You know they somebody's already has some. They're not you know you're not using them. You can only use them once. You use a few now and then for training. And there, people are taking things out of storage and, and sending them to the Ukraine. But the question is, how many are there? How effective are there? How effective are they considering possible Russian defensive measures? And how long does it take to get there, considering that if Russia has already occupied of all the Ukraine, you, you don't have to worry about it very much? And also oh, – well, how, I wouldn't say one. Oh, go on. No, no, no you, you go ahead. And also, I mean, how much do the Europeans want the Ukrainians to win? You could imagine <laughs> that it, they'll be terrified that if Putin's going to lose, he'll use a tactical nuclear weapon. So they might calculate what's the most harm we could inflict on him without the Russians ultimately people have People have thought that in the past. That is was a fairly common thought during the Cold War by a lot of people. It says, well, we would like to – the Russians are trying to conquer country X – well, we would like to make it expensive. We can't actually stop them because we know they're the wave of the future, and they might get irritated. Uh, oh, by the way, there are other people who did not think this way and were perfectly happy, given the chance, to have them actually lose. But there were people who thought like that. And who knows? Maybe some of the time they were right. It's, you can't really replay the, the history. I mean, for example, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States – I was saying that if the Russians had succeeded in keeping short-range missiles in Cuba, it would have doubled their strategic strength. That would have meant the United States only had an edge of seven times mm -hmm. instead of 14 times. But considering we did have an edge of 14 times, and we could probably destroy all those missiles before they launched them at that phase, we probably could have told the Russians said, well, you know, 
we don't have to get into trouble about this, but there, what you need to do is you need to do a couple of things to make us happy. And one of them is you have to give us Castro's head. And they would have done it. They knew what the numbers were. And by the way, during the crisis, they ended up saying, you know, we don't even really like Castro, since he actually wanted nuclear weapons to get fired, which Khrushchev said, you're insane. You know, and he was, of course. Uh, but uh, But we didn't press it. Now, the reason we didn't press it is probably because the president of the United States at the time didn't have the faintest idea what he was doing. But he might have been right. I mean, for example, when I said the key is that you, you take a short-range missile, you put it in Cuba, it's now a strategic missile. I have read the XCOM discussions, a bunch of recorded talk among the people making policy on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. And it's fairly clear that uh, Kennedy never did understand why it made any difference whether – like where, where where they put them in there or not? Well, I said why well, he didn't know anything technical about uh, weapons. And one of the things is it's sometimes not everybody feels like pointing out to the president that he doesn't know shit. I mean, sometimes the president doesn't take that well. Uh, I've seen it with other. Uh, there were discussions back in uh, when um, in the, one of the Lebanese civil wars when Reagan got involved somewhat for a little while before we decided not to. Mm -hmm. There was talk about uh, how Syria had put missiles in the Bekaa Valley, the eastern Lebanon area, where uh, there were allies of the Syrians were important, uh, and people and and Reagan was concerned about those missiles. He did not understand that they were anti-aircraft missiles. People talked about, well, they're a threat to Israel. I said they were a threat to Israel's ability to bomb anybody at once freely, but that's the only threat they were. But does that mean the president – I mean, like suppose I knew a complex technical detail about nuclear weapons, uh, like say, well, why do we would rather use several small ones than one big one? And the answer basically is the square cube law. You cause more damage with three one megaton bombs than one three megaton bomb uh, uh, in terms of total area that gets sufficient overpressure. But a friend of a friend once tried to explain this to Robert McNamara, and he never could understand it. Now, does that mean that – but, of course, Biden would understand it? You know, maybe not. Well, so we, that's another scary thing is we don't quite know who's in charge in the United States. I mean, who's making – Well, the there's – in a real sense, you know, nobody is. I mean, like the guys who actually make the decisions, do they know a lot of seemingly obvious key facts? Like, like let's suppose that Putin – was sure that 80% uh, of everybody in the Ukraine desperately wanted to be part of Russia and they were being held back by an evil regime. Mm -hmm. He Maybe he thought that, but it wasn't true. Uh, now, he's probably more likely to know some of these technical details than the average president, but that doesn't mean he, he's actually very knowledgeable about it. I mean, the average president doesn't really know any of that stuff. I mean, that's not what we elect them for. Don't ask me what it is we do elect them for, but we, but the, you know they don't know. Uh, uh, I mean, with one exception, Eisenhower knew. Yeah. Eisenhower knew stuff, but it's you know they generally don't. Uh, so uh, I mean, like one of the things that like for Putin to make a real judgment of this, he would have to know things like how effective. Uh, I mean, some of it I don't know how anybody would know. Not only how effective, but how irritated will will Europe 
B, how to what extent will they ship things to the Ukraine? Uh, to you know, to, uh, how far are they willing to possibly irritate the Russians? Uh, or you know, or to what extent will there be uh, boycotts and uh, shutdown of commerce and so forth? And I have the feeling it's more than he thought. It's probably more than I thought. Yeah. Now, will it be, you know, a year <laughs> after things settle down in Ukraine, will Europe still care? I don't know. Uh, I mean, as I said, you know, like, there are a lot of scenarios, most of them bad, but even then they're unpredictable. Like, let's suppose Putin uh, successfully occupies all the Ukraine and his losses are, you know, not too big by historical standards. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, does this mean that Russia's in great shape? I said, well, remember, putting a peaceful integration of the Ukraine wouldn't have left Russia in fantastic shape. Now, this is going to be a lot worse than that. Uh, and some of it is questions like, how well can Russia stand up to a shutdown of a lot of commerce with uh, much of the rest of the world? Can they make up for it by buying stuff from China, for example? Uh, some things, yes, but it's not clear to me how they can have any commercial aviation in like a year because they use Western planes and they have to get parts. And where are they going to get them? Now, what if Russia does something drastic by saying, look, I'm going to attack Poland with <laughs> tactical nuclear weapons unless you end the sanctions and stop messing with Ukraine? Well, we'll probably ignore them. And then he, he drops one and kills a few thousand people. Well, then we'll drop one. Now, it's interesting to see where this all goes, but it doesn't sound very a very happy situation to me. I don't know what we'll do. I mean, I could start quoting from some of my favorite movies. Will that help? <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, uh, you know, policy is to fight back if NATO countries are attacked. Uh, by the way, was the idea of NATO expansion up to the edge of Russia while still being fairly hostile to Russia sensible? Probably not. Why did we do it? By the, by the way, who said it was not sensible? Oh, apparently, everybody who ever thought about it. Uh, I might point out that one of the things that was not sensible, and this is apparently a concept that is too subtle to ever be mentioned in public, like when we get small countries and add them to NATO that are, for example, next to Russia, uh, we are we are choosing more liabilities, but but it doesn't make NATO any stronger. I, I agree, mean, it, and it also it also it would be gives nice Russia to have allies that helped a lot. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, it also gives Russia a way to humiliate us that Russia could <laughs> take and hold the Baltic country pretty easily, and that puts us in a difficult position. And it's something well, there, Russia can threaten us with. There, there and, are other difficulties going on, but uh, that uh, probably I barely want to think about them, but. You know, we we have similar numbers of nuclear weapons, but ours are far more accurate. Of course, those haven't been tested in a while, so. Uh, that's another thing. Let's hope. It, I mean, I well, guess hope none that of them probably work, decreases. <laughs> well, unless you're unless you have a leader who feels lucky, but I would think it decreases the chance of anybody trying to do something that relies upon them working. Do you know fact, Russia has not tested its weapons in a while? If they did it, they can't have done much. If you if you test us anywhere. Underground, I'm about to come up with the exceptions, but if you test underground in the air or in the water and you have anything other than an extremely small thing, we would almost certainly detect it. Okay.
I mean, even underground, you get seismic waves, and we have specially optimized things for detecting such things. I think we could tell. Now, maybe if there's such a thing as a tenth of a kiloton explosion that tells you something about the physics of it that you could do, and that you built special things around it that are designed to kind of muffle some of the explosion, people have talked about it. But I'll tell you, at the very most, you couldn't have you couldn't have set off any of your regular weapons. They're bigger than that. But you might have done, and I'm not sure about this, but you might have done some limited testing that would tell you something. Uh, and how long has it been since the United States and Russia has been testing atomic weapons? I don't know what, 30 years? Things uh, really break in 30 years. I mean, that's... Well, yes, but officially they don't. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, Good to know. Uh, well, an old friend of mine uh, who... Uh, used to be an astrophysicist, and now he is a uh, bomb designer, uh, a fairly important one. Uh, he said, uh, my official position is is uh, is in agreement with the uh, Department of Energy. Our uh, stockpile ship, uh, stewardship program is fully adequate, and it tells us what we need to know, and we don't need to test. And he said, well, then there's my other position, the one I have to you my old friend, which is, no, of course not. Is this something I should delete from this, or is it okay to leave in? Lots of people have said this. Okay. <laughs> no, but no. Now, I, I know exceptions, since there are people near and dear to me who claim to believe it, but I don't see how they possibly could. Uh, how you could ever have as much confidence with zero tests as you could if you did a few simple tests. By the way, you don't need a lot. They don't, and if they're underground, they don't have to have any hazards to other people, but we haven't done them. Uh, and neither has, to my knowledge, the only countries that have, in you know, moderately recent times have been, uh, the most recent ones have been Israel, excuse me, uh, no, India and Pakistan. Well, North Korea. Oh, excuse me, and North Korea. North Korea, you know, they've done well. I mean, they've actually got a hydrogen bomb, which everybody was saying they could never do. Or, you know, not for years and years, except, well, but it turned out it didn't take them years and years. Uh, but, uh, I mean, apparently the, the mountain site they were using for a, uh, you know, a site for test was kind of shattered. The bomb was, maybe it was more powerful than they expected. Uh, the, uh, but, uh, <coughs> at any rate, uh, uh, but, you know, so, you know, assimilation is a good thing to think about because that way you get to talk about the board. Uh, the uh, which otherwise I'm not sure we would have had an excuse for. Uh, uh, but as as I said, you know, the, the, you know. By the way, what happens if you do not assimilate? You know, let's look at various scenarios. I mean, starting out with the assumption that Russia wins militarily fairly quickly. I mean, there are other possibilities. You know, maybe. this this all can literally be blamed on the board. I'm not joking. Yes, yes, you're. Uh, or worse yet, on uh, Star Trek. Uh, Voyager. Voyager. Yeah, yes, you've heard that I one. Know. Yes. I always hated that show. <laughs> so just I for didn't the, realize how horrible it was. <laughs> for listeners who don't know, Seven of Nine, an actress of that show who was like a bore. Jerry, Jerry Ryan. Jerry Ryan. She was married to a senator. There was a scandal involving their divorce. He was a congressman. But yes. He was getting ready to run for oh, the Oh, he was running for the Senate. And then he was the favorite to win, but the scandal took him out, and Barack Obama ended up winning that and, of course, going to be president. And then Barack Obama helped expand NATO. So this is all the Borg plot. To... Of course, we could be in a much worse situation. Who knows what would have happened. Yeah, you know, by the way, she's bright, too. She was a National Merit Scholar. 
it could have been a an elaborate plot on her part. Uh, uh, but um, I used to watch Star Trek Voyager because I had a twin that needed to be fed at three o'clock in the morning, and it was horrible. I liked I, it actually. I've seen it more than once. Well, you are a sick puppy. Uh, it was. Um, I still. <laughs> all right, now we must. This is a key. We must leave this in. I still remember the episode in which uh, they get going warp ten, and they get, and it somehow causes forced evolution, and she and her executive officer turn into giant newts. That they, you know, see when people make lists of the worst Star Trek episodes, they don't include this because it's so much worse than the others. It needs a category of its own. They, so they turn into giant newts, and then they mate, and they have little newt tadpoles, which they leave in some, uh, you know, some distant world's pond, and then everything gets reversed, and they're back to normal. But I said, what about those newt babies? Who's taking care of them? They have never answered this question. Well, they need a whole new series for that. Uh, you know, that would actually be interesting. Yeah. Uh, this was an episode by Bron and Braga, who's famous as a regular generator of truly stupid, horrifyingly bad. He was also, by the way, Jerry Ryan's boyfriend for a while. Well, it's all coming together, isn't it? Yes. Uh, uh, and in a way that we had not immediately expected. Okay, back to the Ukraine. Well, let me ask you another question now. I'm yes. I'm concerned about the global food supply. We've already had rising food prices. Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of food. And you should be. And there's yes. a fertilizer, Russia's exporter of fertilizer. <coughs> I'm also afraid that what Biden might do is restrict U.S. exports of food to keep down domestic prices. And it, I, I was looking into this, but it wouldn't surprise me if most of the people who die as a result of this Ukraine invasion die of starvation in Africa and Asia. Is that a reasonable fear, do you think? I don't know. Again, you need to know the numbers, but yeah, I think it's something to worry about. That is something that most people don't understand. I mean, that's been true for years. I've seen this question come up similar in, 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 in other times of the past, which is, you know, who are the people who are hurt the most when you have things like oil prices go up? This Here it's more than food prices are going up also, but start out with just oil prices. There are parts of the world where people, you know, use fertilizer, but, you know, it's hard for them to afford. There are places where, they do a certain amount of uh, using tractors and things, but you know it's again for them it's hard to afford. Uh, but it's important uh, in terms of how much what effect it has on yields. Yeah, and Africa is a typical place, although there are some others. And some of those places, I don't quite know how you know they're going to get by uh, with uh, significantly higher oil prices compounded with significantly higher food prices. Uh, and I mean, and not only that. Uh, two ways. I mean, uh, a lot of fertilizer uses, uh, uh, say, uh, natural gas as a feedstock. That's short. Uh, 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 I believe Russia, and possibly the Ukraine, but certainly Russia, was a fairly significant exporter of fertilizer. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is bad in several ways. I am not sure exactly how bad it is, but uh, yeah, it's a concern. Uh, and uh, 
Well, here's I have another Star Trek reference for you. The actor who played Sulu, oh God. who played yes. Sulu on the original series, he tweeted the following: "Americans, we can endure higher prices for food and gas if it means putting the screws to Putin. Consider it a patriotic donation in the fight for freedom over tyranny." And that's certainly true, but of course, you raise the price of food for Americans, it's going up for everybody, and there are people who really can't afford higher prices for food in the world. Well, you see, that's his. he has this enduring problem. He is an idiot. He was an, He's always been an idiot. We should probably try to find out what Shatner's saying, <laughs> yeah. uh, because it, it could be better. Uh, but yeah, you, you can't take that attitude. It uh, well, you can if you just completely ignore well, all right, if you're, poor if people. If you want to be a fool, but yes, you do have to think about things like that. I don't know. Uh, I mean, like you know, one of the questions to think about is things like what you might call surge capacity. What? Uh, let's suppose that you know Ukraine to a significant, you know, like in worst cases, it can get a lot worse. I mean, if what if Ukraine says? Uh, get out of our face or we'll blow up the pipelines. By the way, if I were Ukrainian, I think that would be an entirely reasonable thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way you do it is you blow up one of the pipelines and then make it clear that you were serious about it. It's really damaged, and but that's only one. There are something like five. If you did that and then said, look, let's end this or we'll blow up the rest, you might get them to listen. You might. Okay. Them means both the Russians and Western Europe. Uh, but the point is, what if it doesn't happen? The point is, those could all get blown up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also the possibility of boycotts stopping Russian exports, but I have even more faith in explosions than I do in boycotts for for ruining a pipeline. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, but that decreases world supplies. Yeah, what if you have a situation in which Russian supplies and Ukrainian supplies – Ukrainian supplies are more in the agricultural area, but they matter. Suppose they're subtracted from the world market. How? What is? What can be done? Uh, there are similar questions, by the way, saying what happens if, if Russia is isolated? What can Russia do? But let's talk about the rest of the world first. All right, what can we do to increase uh, oil and gas production? Now, in the short run, I don't know how much, but fundamentally it means you do more. And the U.S. has some options. It could do more fracking. Yeah. Uh, we can't do small things like, uh, 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 like suppose we had a pipeline we closed for symbolic reasons. You could open it for practical reasons. Well, let me just ask you: if the pipelines do get blown up, does that affect Europe's agricultural output? Is that is that energy output? Is that being used in part to grow food, or is that a lot of people use a, a common procedure, more common than anything else, is to use uh, natural gas in a version of the Haber-Bosch process for making uh, nitrogen fertilizers. I don't know how much that is used in Europe. I suspect a fair amount, but I don't know off the top of my head. But in most places, people use natural gas. You don't have to. There are other... But it could take a while to switch a plant, right? (coughs) Yes. That becomes really disastrous. I mean, if Ukraine isn't planting much food... And then Western Europe it has a lot less fertilizer, and Russia isn't exporting fertilizer. That that's a lot of people who could end up dying. Well, let's think about what are the things that can be done. I mean, some of the are things that sound possible, but you'd have to investigate. One of them is how long would it take Germany, if indeed it is possible at all? I'm not sure it is. How long would it take them to reopen their nuclear power plants? That would be a useful thing to do if you have that 
that decreases your demand. And for that matter, although it it couldn't be done instantly, but it could be done faster than you think, particularly if you had Germans doing it, you could um, you can make fertilizers using a nuclear power plant. Uh, I know people who thought that wow. the natural gas is somehow vital, but it is there. You're doing two things with the natural gas. You are getting the heat energy, mm. but you're also you strip off some of the hydrogen in the natural gas. Natural gas is mostly methane, CH4. Uh, use some of that to, as part of the uh, the process you're doing, but you don't have to. The original version of the Haber-Bosch process, uh, the only key things you need is you need a source of heat, and you need air, and you need water. Yeah, That's it. Okay. Uh, and so uh, you can, um, if you want to, you can burn coal. By the way, that is another thing, which there are undoubtedly places that could use coal that aren't using them right now, where you could amp that up. Coal has its environmental questions, but you know we could solve those later. In the, if we're talking about worrying about things like food shortages, that probably should come first. So a concern then is that the political leaders won't be concerned about food shortages <laughs> until people start starving, and then it's too late because you've got to get the fertilizer and, of course, use it to plant the food. Uh, so it might not have occurred to them that this will result in mass starvation, and it won't occur to them until they see pictures. To, you're of, trying to say that our political class does not sit around in its spare time thinking about Gibbs free energy? I think I think it'll be similar to we, we warned everyone of COVID very early. We weren't the only ones, but no one paid attention to us, and it could be a similar thing with starvation. That, I'm not sure you're wrong. Uh uh, by the way, uh, that was a joke. Of course, our political <laughs> yeah. class does not know anything about Gibbs free energy, and the, but that's an important process. One general estimate is that something like a third to forty percent of the people on Earth, the only reason there's enough for them to eat is using the Haber-Bosch process. That's you know significant. Uh, but but what could be done in the short term? We could, you know, like opening up that pipeline. Only helps a little uh, because, you know, it's just letting things go uh, be distributed more cheaply and safely, basically. I mean, there are two, like the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, there is, uh, uh, what you know, oil being produced from tar sands in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of it, the most logical market, if you had cheap transportation, would be the upper Midwest. Since there isn't much, it more goes somewhere further away, like to a, a Pacific port or something, and maybe it goes to China or something. Uh, if you had, uh, similarly, the other major thing it could do is uh, oil, North Dakota is now a major oil-producing state because of the, uh, we figured out how to uh, how to frack in the Bakken shale, mm -hmm. and uh, it would be useful to uh, be able to ship it from there uh, by uh, something which is cheaper and safer than railroad cars, which would be the that pipeline. So you know that would be a reasonable thing to do, but it's far, it's far from a general solution to the overall situation. Well, something what, I, what would be? Uh, I mean, uh, like I remember certain science fiction writers who said, "Well, you know, who is it who's actually thinking about the long term?" And the guy said, "Fuck, it's us. We're so doomed." Uh, well, you know, so who's actually thinking about these? Uh, I said it's probably you and me, which again probably means we're doomed. But uh, well, the, uh, let me tell you, I I have a partial solution. I mean, markets can handle this, 
if they're allowed to operate. And I can imagine farmers and people in the agribusiness will be afraid that um, Biden will restrict exports to keep down the price of food. So I, Biden won't do this, but something he could do is promise not to restrict exports. And then that would incentivize farmers today to be growing more in the expectation of getting very high prices in the event of a famine. Probably, probably it will be the reverse where we'll, if there's a famine, we'll be urging farmers to not charge high prices and demonizing them if they are and taking this all into account. They'll grow well, even I'm, less I'm food. Sure, I'm sure that's what Elizabeth Warren would say, yes. but apparently she can't count. Yes, uh, it'll be blamed on greed if there's a famine. Well, um, the idea is to harness greed to do good right, things. That's what I believe what, in. But. What can <laughs> – but what I'm thinking, you know, what can be done? See, part of the problem is people getting ready to plant right now. Yeah, we, we need them to think, oh, the price of wheat is a good chance it'll be much higher and corn much higher. So just well, go all markets, out, use markets, more land. You know, since the last I saw, uh, wheat was $13 a bushel. Yeah, I think some people heard that. But, uh, okay, what can you do? There are things you can do, but you have to think about it. And some of them, markets won't do the whole job that is doable. Uh, like because because markets don't put a whole lot of weight on the choices of poor people because they don't have any money. But okay? collectively, the poorest billion do have a lot of money to spend on food. It's not as money as California, as much money as California, probably. Yeah, but, markets care a lot about California. That's well, let's but let's think about this. Okay, what can be done? Uh, I mean, if I were king, which is usually the beginning of any of these solutions. Yes, of course. Or if you were king, you probably do most of the same things. But uh, like, what's one choice? We could have. Uh, we need, you know, this would probably take about three days. But you need to actually try to get a quantitative estimate of exactly how much trouble we're in. Right. That's a good thing to do. It's doable. Uh, and some of it's a choice because we said, well, we don't have to. Uh, well, you could say we will buy food from Russia, and even if we don't buy oil, you could. I mean, it's it's not all or nothing. You can mm -hmm. make choices. Of course, the Russians could say, well, we'll uh, we we'll put an embargo on everything because we're mad at you. I can't tell where all of that goes. Well, now the Russians, India is being friendly with Russia, so it's hard to imagine Russia refusing <laughs> to sell wheat to India in the event of a famine in India. India is self-sufficient. It's not. Will there, will there be, though, in what they have reduced oh, fertilizer? With, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's certain things I know. The United States produces on the order of four times more than it needs to eat. It could so, And much of that is exported. But I'll tell you one thing that you could do is you could shoot a lot of cattle. And, by the way, if it's not too late, you could try to plant something like wheat instead of corn. And maybe they will to some extent because markets will push them. Lots of places, U.S., there's a choice. You can, you know, where I grew up, people typically grew corn or they grew soybeans or they grew a mix, but some years they grow wheat, and they could. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of what, what was the most profitable and, choice for and them. for feeding humans, it's better to grow wheat than corn? Some of it's what you're used to. I mean, could humans eat large amounts of field corn? The answer is they could, and actually there's a plus to that because, you see, you get more bushels per acre of corn than you would buy wheat. Buy a lot. One thing is be prepared to eat something different. So let's suppose, you know, here's a kingly thing. We shoot half of the cattle in the United States, all right, which also means beef prices are low around the election. The uh, And then we take that corn and we explain to people that 
Uh, cornbread is not that bad. And it isn't, by the way. You can eat it, certainly. Uh, now, there are subtle vitamin deficiency differences, but those are actually smaller than they used to be, and we could, and any of those problems would be cured with one vitamin pill. In other words, if you wanted to feed more people, one way to do it is you feed fewer cows and you use a lot of corn. Remind you, this stuff is already being planted. I strongly suspect it's too late to change this oh. year. Hmm. I mean, considering that people only move so fast. But if you said, uh, all right, we're going to divert half of the corn crop stored to feeding humans, I'll bet it makes up for the entire so, uh, shortage. This has an important policy implication. So if <laughs> Biden feels he has to mess with food prices, he should mess with the price of meat and not corn or wheat. He should mandate a very low price of meat, and that'll cause a lot of farmers to not bother to feed their cows and just and kill them. Um, Something like that might be possible. But see, most of the benefit is going to be distant, backward countries. Just say, you know, yes. which is a sure vote getter, usually. I'm just saying. Um, but yes. But this could if, be millions of people dying of starvation. I mean, that's. Be more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's worth thinking about. Now, what other do we have any other options to deal with uh, fertilizer production? I mean, I can think of things I can do. The question is, how many of them can I do really rapidly? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you can build more Haber-Bosch process, and there's variants on it. I mean, you can run a Haber-Bosch process on a nuclear power plant, and that would only take apparently the rest of our lives since we no longer believe in building nuclear power plants. But you could. All right. You could you could build a coal plant to do Haber Bosch, probably in a year or a year and a half. I said, you know, like these are the you know how long does it physically take to do it? This doesn't say how long does it take to get permits, which is you know forever in a day or whatever. But if you were physically determined to do it and wanted to do it, could you build more fertilizer plants burning coal? Sure, you could. I mean, one of the reasons is uh, the coal coal is you know coal demand is going down. People are switching to other things in this country, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, you could probably you could probably use like if you had sufficiently cheap electricity, you could almost certainly use that to produce a fertilizer plant. But again, not instantly. I mean, some of these things only take two years, but two years is not very good. Yeah. Or like like other basic facts: how much does the world have of of uh, formal uh, Food reserves, not a lot. Last I remember was like 78 days, but but we have more than that if you're willing to make certain choices. Like you can think of cattle as a food bank. You can always increase the number of cattle later. You can shoot half of them. Maybe people do when they have to. How much could we increase our, our fish imports? I mean, if we weren't worried about long-term sustainability, we're just not like, much. Well, there's every reason to think most ocean fishing is, if anything, kind of oversaturated. I don't think there's any way to significantly ramp it up. Um, fish, I would say, I, I don't see any 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 promising options in that direction, other than you know keep doing what you're doing, because uh, this is hardly the time to stop. But uh, I don't think there's any simple way. The ocean is the ocean as a whole seems to be overfished in many places. In, in general, I don't think there's much to squeeze out in an emergency. What is the, you know, the place where if you wanted to squeeze things out, the place is North America and Europe, because those are the places that produce uh, more food than they use. France exports food. Argentina exports food. The United States. 
Canada, lots. Uh, Brazil, probably some of that. They're, most of uh, now Arab countries, well, they all import. Uh, Africa, most of them are not self-sufficient, um, although many of them could be. Uh, although, again, what does that mean? You know, how practical are the things you might do? Australia, they usually export, but they're kind of variable because it depends a lot on how much of a drought they've got. Uh, Japan is not self-sufficient, but, you know, they'll be able to afford it. Don't worry about them. Yeah. Uh, China's pretty self-sufficient. Again, this is all before the fertilizer supplies got messed up, although apparently... Yeah, but I, I will bet that China's not importing. Yeah. But again, I don't know for sure. We'd have to look up the numbers. But, yeah, so what are the places... Like, you know, one of your worst places would be an Arab country that has no oil. Uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, which is usually a good place for bad things to happen. Uh, so You know, Bangladesh isn't rich. They might have trouble. Pakistan might have trouble. So far, I, on things like fertilizer imports. So ideally, <laughs> people would have already done a sophisticated analysis. They would know if we're in trouble and if globally we're in trouble. And if we were, there'd be efforts in the most agriculturally productive areas to increase production even more as quickly as they can. But obviously, that last part hasn't isn't happening, or we would have uh, heard about it. Uh, I don't think it is. Uh, the uh... I mean, it might be that the total thing is only annoying and not, you know, you need to know the numbers. Yeah. I mean, I, it looks ominous, but I don't know enough to be sure at this point. Although I think we could probably find out over, you know, a couple of days of digging around. You know, once I, you know, have get all my vest, all my trained monkeys to work for mm -hmm. me, if I, except I don't have any. But, uh, but anyhow, yeah, it, it, it couldn't be that hard. But then you have to, some of the things you need to know is what could be substituted for what. Right. Uh, what uh, you know? What is are the expected changes in output with changes in the amount of fertilizer? Again, somebody will know that at least approximately. All those things are known. Uh, and I imagine there's lots of environmental regulations with big farming, and to make small changes, you need permission. And will you get that fast enough? And, and the question is, if there's useful things to done, if you can find a way to cut through, uh, you know, regulate regulatory things that take too much time. That would be a valuable thing to do. Right. You know, that was one of the that was one of the things that I think a lot of people were kind of well, definitely they were surprised with that uh, you know fairly urgent vaccine effort, Operation Warp Speed. Right. Because lots of people thought it takes it inherently in the nature of things takes forever to make a new vaccine. I uh, there was an article in the New York Times they were projecting it would be ready in 1032. <laughs> uh and I knew that wasn't true. Now, there are vaccines that have taken a long time because what they are is typically there are vaccines against something that affected a small number of people. I mean, where the risk was a, was not very high, but it was real. Uh, uh, and where, therefore, it had to be extraordinarily safe because you had to make sure that, you know, you, you, you were doing more good than harm. So you had to, like, when the risk is small, the vaccine has to be that much safer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a regulatory environment that makes things take a long time, even when there is no reason. Uh, some of that was uh, uh, some of that was the vaccines aren't that profitable. One of the things is you could have a guy in a pharmaceutical company says, "You know, I don't know if we want to spend much money on it this year. We've got bigger fish to fry, uh, etc." All of those things were happening, but I knew that it didn't take forever to do it. I used uh, a special method, which is I knew it had happened before without taking forever. 
and I have a general principle, if somebody was able to do something in three or four months in 1918, then maybe we could still do it today or in 1957, which is a little closer because at least that was a virus. People whipped up. Uh, in fact, a guy uh, whose name I should remember because he did a great job who was uh, – back then, the, I guess the armed forces had some actual production capability, and he saw a bad flu happening in East Asia, and he caught on quickly, and he got ready, and the, uh, the vaccine was ready in November or something, you know, enough to greatly reduce the amount of trouble it would have caused. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it can happen. But on something like this, yeah, I think you need to look at the numbers. Uh, and the other thing is some of it's a choice. I said, you know, if – if trying to, uh, you know, if trying to punish Russia for what it's doing uh, causes too much harm in the world as a whole, you could decide not to do it or to do less of it or, yeah. or to try to do a more focused version of it. That all is worth thinking about. Uh, now, if Ukraine can't, Ukraine, the excuse is, well, it's really hard to go out and, and plow when people are shooting at you. Uh, uh, that may be a real problem. Uh, the... Uh, Although, again, if it's just the Ukraine, it's a smaller problem than if it's the Ukraine plus Russia. Uh, but at uh, any rate, yeah, it's, that's, that's worth thinking about. Uh, but as I said, you know, since it involves a general knowledge of you know, agriculture and uh, agricultural technology and uh, you know, production and so forth in different parts of the world, naturally every key decision maker in the U.S. Just has all of that you know, right on the tips of their fingers. Yeah. Uh, of course, yeah. Uh, but but there are people who do. Uh, actually, you want, one set of guys who would be useful to talk to if you could get them to stop screaming would be commodities traders. You know, they probably know some of those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, lot, assuming that they are actually any good at what they do. Uh, uh and, and there's all sorts of ways to get detailed information. You know, we have special satellites that could – I think they can even tell, at least after it comes up, they can tell what's being what's been planted. You know, so like let's say by um, – we could tell whether it was wheat or corn and place X everywhere on Earth by – or let's say the northern hemisphere by, by June or something like that. Anyhow, uh, we, we can get a lot of information. And, uh, uh, and there are some things – some choices we could make that would free up resources. Uh, but, uh, uh, like, will we probably do some things to try to increase oil production inside the United States? There are – most of those things don't work instantly, uh, but you could do some things. Um, and since also, by the way, this may go on for a while, things that happen instantly are not the only things you want to think about. You might even want to think about next year. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, uh, Biden's people didn't like fracking, and they've discouraged it. And in some places, they've made it more difficult to do. Not everywhere. But there are also interesting things. There are states that don't allow it. One interesting federal thing, which I naturally expect since it is highly rational, uh, is, for example, I believe it's not allowed in New York State, yeah. even though there are believed to be sedimentary deposits that would be very promising, you know, that ones, you know, beds that already were known to go through Ohio and Pennsylvania, they extend into New York State, but I don't believe they've allowed them to do much, you know, by because of state law. But you know, that's what feds are for—is to crush state law. They could say, "Well, you get to drill under Albany now," or uh, another place like that is California. 
Uh, but I don't actually think they will. But I don't actually know anymore because at this point we're going to have so many things happening that people don't like. It's possible that the administration will be trying to sit around and think of things to make them less furious. Um, and that's my fear. They're, they're going to restrict the price of, of corn and wheat. And they're going to well, that would reduce. Uh, yeah, that wouldn't be. T- no, they're going um, to. I mean, it'll be might. fine for Americans, but devastating well, like, worldwide. Like, uh, I can think of guys who were smarter who did equally stupid things. Once upon a time, there was a. Have you heard of the all right, there's a, a, a climate pattern that extends over a large number of areas and over up to a couple of years called the Southern Oscillation in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. And there are correlations between what happens in Australia, what happens in India, what happens in South Africa, and what happens in South America. And the part of it, one part of it you've heard of is El Nino. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But it's part of a, a larger pattern. I mean, this pattern is sort of more pre- it allows you to predict more over the next, say, year or two than you normally can. So when this particular pattern happens, southern oscillation, you end up – I forget how it's all connected, but it affects uh, you know, it affects the Indian monsoon. It affects droughts in Australia. It affects droughts in South Africa. And it affects uh, the, uh, uh, the fish harvest uh, along, the, uh, along the west coast of South America. So we had a cycle, and I think it was, you know, the the, the opposite of, you know, it was the time when it's uh, it rains more than people expect and it's warmer. Mm-hmm. Okay, this was happening off the coast of South America. This was like 71 or something like that. And uh, there was, and the anchovies did poorly. They typically, you know, live in sort of a, there's a cold current and there's upwelling of, of water that has a lot of nutrients, and that's where a lot of the anchovies come from. Anchovies are used, or were, I think they still are, they were used as a supplement for cattle feed. And one of the reasons is that uh, corn, which is the main ingredient of cattle feed typically, is short in a couple of fatty acids that animals absolutely have to have. They can't make for themselves. So there's there's a need to add certain things to a corn ration so that cows will will do okay on it. Mm -hmm. And they used to throw in some anchovies. Then there were no anchovies. Now, there were other options. One of them was soybeans. And soybeans, uh, uh, you know, I think they went up to $11 uh, a bushel, which was a huge price at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I remember one of my uncles had already sold all of his expected uh, 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 soybean yield at four or five, and he was sad. I mean, you know, it was a futures thing. He didn't know. He didn't know El Nino. He did not have detailed climate modeling available. Uh, but uh, but Nixon said, "Let's get too high. We're going to have to ban soybean exports." Why did Nixon do this? I said, because when it came to economics, he had this impulse every now and then to do something that was really dumb. You yeah. know, like like when he did wage and price controls, which was really dumb. This one was like what this did was it sort of got the soybean industry started in Brazil, which is now bigger than ours. Although you know my, that might have happened anyhow, but this was a real strong nudge when, when we cut off exports. Uh, but uh, anyhow, there I've told you my Central Illinois soybean epic. Uh, but uh, but yeah, these things all affect each other in in funny ways. Um, I yeah, a lot of it boils down to 
you know, if, you know, the side effects for a lot of things may be more important than the Ukraine Russia war themselves, if 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 we're unlucky. Uh, and uh, and by the way, people do not always think about these things, and you can have disasters, side effect disasters. You know, like there were many things that went wrong, but probably the biggest cause was you know World War II that caused the uh, uh, the Bengal famine of right. 1943. Right. You had every possible thing go wrong, which was they had bad weather, they had a lot of construction of bases to fly stuff to China, and that sucked workers out of agriculture, but it didn't cause – but nothing compensated for the lack of their labor, so there was less food production. Uh, uh, normally they could import food, but ships were short because there was more need for shipping in a war, and – and, but all sorts of ships were being sunk by German and uh, Japanese attacks. And then at the end, Churchill seemed to have been irritated with the Bengals and didn't want to help them. And at the end, several million people starved to death. Uh, but, you know, it was like when you start a war, you're causing all – not only do you not know how it's going to work out for you, you can deeply inconvenience people thousands of miles away who never heard of you. Yeah. Which, by the way, did Putin really care? Probably not. Like, as I said, I still don't know what the oh, – like, by the way, there's all sorts of scenarios we've missed we won't have time for. But, like, what if you have an occupied Ukraine, much of which isn't in the mood to assimilate? What if it's – what if you have even 300 guys who are in a situation where they're kind of like the Irish op Republican Army? You know, that was, you know, that wasn't a lot of people. I mean, are there Ukrainians who could sneak into Russia and do terrorism if they were pissed? I said, sure. I mean, you can find Ukrainians who look Russian, speak perfect Russian. I said, well, maybe you could fix that if you have, you know, a panopticon where you have your spine on everybody and you have secret police everywhere and monitor everybody for the rest of time. And I said, because that's that has no cause. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, why do you want a lot of people who don't want to be part of you? I mean, there can be reasons. I mean, for example, if it was before World War II, they, got, they said, look, we need all the places we can get to make it so it takes longer for the Germans to get to Moscow. But was was Ukraine any kind of military threat to Russia? No. Were they, you know, doing things to try to subvert Russia? Not that I ever heard of. I mean, this is... You know, Putin, you know, had a wild hair up his ass and decided to do this, as far as I can tell. Uh, I mean, or you could say certain old-fashioned motives, oh, we'll be bigger on the map. I said, you're pretty big already on the map. Uh, it's it's possible that they won't, you know, like when, when the, uh, like I get, sometimes assimilation happens. I haven't heard of enormous amounts of trouble. I mean, partly because most of the people who hated it uh, either died or escaped, but South Vietnam is kind of assimilated to the rest of Vietnam after conquest. Not that they enjoyed it, I think, but, you know, it happened. But sometimes people don't. Oh, by the way, another way to deal with that is you just settle the hell out of it and send your vast surplus population to dominate the locals, whether they like you or not. We'll call this the Uyghur solution. But it's worked other places, too. Uh, in Indonesia, annexed uh, the western part of New Guinea, the locals, you know, they, they didn't want them, but, you know, they just settled two or three million people, and now they outnumber the locals. Problem, you know, solved in a sense. But Russia doesn't have a surplus uh -huh, population. Yes. Well, all they have to do 
is go out and have babies. Of course, if they had, you know, which would, why did they try that in the first place? It's a lot more fun than invading somebody anyhow. So I um, had a, a viral tweet on that measure. I suggested that the way we could really hurt Putin was be, would be to encourage lots and lots of young Russian women to move west. We like give them citizenship and lots of money and we depopulate Russia of its young fertile women. A lot of people didn't like that tweet, but it went viral. So They disliked it so much they repeated it? Uh, yes, I, that's how it works. Some people thought it was funny. Other you're, people you're, hate retweeted me. You should have attached uh, certain pictures. Well, they were accusing me of having that particular – I wasn't doing it for that, the reason that people were assuming, but it was more to like take women away from Russia than to give them to you know, American men. People are assuming. Yeah. Look, if we're going to pay for it, I see no reason why we shouldn't get the benefits. We, in a broad sense, <laughs> not necessarily you or me. Okay. Yes. Uh, but. Uh, uh, but we could yeah. accelerate the depopulation of Russia to a lot of really, I don't really want to wipe out Russia. What I would like to see in my dreams is Russia that was like as, at least as rational as it was 10 years ago that. Is just you know doing Russian stuff and not bothering anybody too much. There, that's there. That would be my desire, yeah. uh, and that was actually true for about almost every country on earth. I don't. There's not too many people I really want to wipe out, uh, or even just most of them. I don't even want to just fade quietly away. Although there's a couple of where I, I guess I would be willing to think about it. The, uh, but you know, dream on. Uh, the. Uh, I, you know, I could, as I said, I said in our best case, you know, Russia was occupied with trying to trying to fix the Ukraine to some extent. But there were all, but there are so many cases in which they said they're surly, they don't like us. Uh, we get some rebellious stuff, we get some terrorism, we get so that if Russians go into this quarter of the Ukraine, you know, they're lucky to come out with their shoes. I mean, there's a million. I mean, there's lots of countries that have long-lasting things like this. I mean, you know, there were parts um, – I mean, like what was the Yugoslav solution to getting along with the Albanians down in the south? I said there wasn't any solution. Uh, um, I mean, or, you know, it's it's a goofy thing to do. I mean, there was no threat behind it. There's no huge – I mean, look, I – I thought of reasons it would make sense to invade the Ukraine. Like one of one of the UFOs we're talking about really is an alien spacecraft and it really does crash. I mean, I would invade the Ukraine in that case. By the way, that is much less crazy than you wanting to shoot them down. And I would like to say that right now. <laughs> I said if they fall down all by themselves, it's worth it would be yeah. worth fighting a small country to take a look. Then we're just showing weakness or opening ourselves up to Intergalactic invasion, but oh, I don't want. You know, I am just a quiet kind of person. I don't want to start a war with the Galactic Confederacy. What can I say? Uh, although I have seen scenarios in which we win, uh, <laughs> but they are called stories. Uh, okay, we should probably. Um, I want to. I like go edit this in really soon as soon as possible. So we should probably wrap this up. Okay, but I think that. Uh, in pointing out that the side effects to the rest of the world, and by the way, those are, I think, easier to understand what they might be as opposed to understand the true, like understanding some of the things that happen in the Ukraine depend upon still on things like what does, what are decisions is Putin going to make that, and I, 
cases where I don't know the answer. Yeah, it's hard uh, to model his thinking now. But if you have, what happens if we have this much decrease in the world's supplies of, of, of wheat, of fertilizer, of fossil fuels? That is something you could come closer to understanding, and it, it's worrisome over very ro large regions. Yeah. So uh, we could talk another time about all my ideas for if I was Ukrainian, how I could make the Russians wish they had never been born. <laughs> I have some. Uh, and nothing as trivial as blowing up a pipeline. But we'll, but that might come another time. Okay. All right. Well, uh, nice speaking with you, and uh, let's hope we're wrong about the famine. Uh, I think it's avoidable, but it is a problem. Uh, right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.